0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm Martin Willis, your host, and we have our guest Avi Loeb coming up. He is running a little bit uh, a little bit behind. He was in another interview earlier, um, and I just got a message from him. He's running a little bit behind, so we have a little time to kill here. And uh, I will ask you, people that are listening and watching live and chat, if you want to throw a question my way, You know, maybe we can get a conversation going that way. Uh, but uh, again, Avi Loeb, uh, Harvard astrophysicist, is, uh, coming up within, I would think within, um, probably within five or 10 minutes, he should be joining us. Uh, a quick announcement. Um, the holidays are coming up. I got this email from the Ariel phenomenon, the movie through Randall Nickerson. I tried to get him just now to see if he was available, but he's not, but, uh, his, Uh, The Aerial Phenomenon movie is going to be available on Christmas Day on iTunes, Apple TV, Google Play, YouTube, and Amazon Prime Video in the U.S. and the U.K. So also, if you go over to the website, his website, aerialphenomenon.com, I believe it is, um, there's some merch for sale, too. T-shirts, just in time for Christmas, things like that. And, uh, anyway, I really, uh, think it's one of the most beautiful films made on this subject. And it's, to me, it's, I consider that the top, uh, the top case, uh, as far as being fast, fascinating, in my opinion, and all those school children, uh, just seem so credible and they never really strayed from their stories. I believe whatever happened, whatever it was happened, did happen to those kids and, uh, Randall Nickerson did such a beautiful job with the film. And I I know a lot of people that pay attention to this topic have already watched it. Um, I've watched it a couple of times, maybe three, I think, at this point. And I really was looking forward to seeing it in the theater uh, when I had uh, ended up having to have surgery and and miss that uh, that big event when that happened. Um, And uh, I think it was Western Massachusetts. Um, new Northampton mass is when that, uh, like can't remember when the date was, but I was out of commission. And anyway, our blog this week by Charles Lear is Hayden Hughes and the N- international UFO bureau. So let me take a look at chat here. See if there's any questions. Um, greetings everyone. And let's see. Uh, no questions yet, but if anyone has a question, let's see if anyone put anything in here. I see Bobby, Mary, Grace. Hi, hello, hello, and uh, all good to have you all in here. Callie kid. Uh, here's a question. Let's see. Uh, so, Martin, how do you feel about the possibility of ammonia-based, uh, an ammonia-based creature from the documentary. Oh, you're talking about James Fox uh, documentary. Uh, you know, I don't know about that, if that would be a type of building block that would work. I know they speculate that there could be silken, like a silken-based, besides carbon-based uh, life. Uh, why that that being had such an odor, uh, I don't know what the, the makeup of that was. And it would be really interesting to know and to think that there's possibly some information out there in Brazil about uh, when they did the autopsy on whatever, the supposed autopsy. I don't know, 100 percent sure that any of this, you know, can be documented or not. But anyway, um, it was to me, I think it was a, a very good case. And. That's called Moment of Contact, James Fox movie. And if you haven't watched that, it's another great one here. Here's a... Now, I just... Uh, hi, Martin. Any thoughts on the nuclear fusion breakthrough announced today? I heard that was announced today, and I'm really, really excited to read about it. Um, I've been traveling all day. I'm in, uh, As you can see, I'm in a hotel room. And I, I had that article sent to me, and I can't wait to uh, read that. It's very exciting if... If it's a breakthrough, because that would certainly solve a lot of problems that we have. And uh, here's another question here. Have you seen David Pilates' new UFO 411 movie? I have not. Now, I've met him a few years ago down in uh, Cherry Hill, down in New Jersey. And I know that he used to really be into the UFO topic, but he was staring completely away from it um, when he was doing those 411. One movies and books, I mean, he did that one movie and, and some books. Um, so I knew that he was into the UFO topic and I had a, a private conversation with him and asked what he thought about that aspect of it. So um, he did not want to be on this show. He wanted to kind of distance himself from the UFO. But it looks like if he has this movie out, then it uh, looks like it's time for me to get in touch with him and see if I can get him on as a guest. I have not seen it, or I didn't even know about it. But uh, thank you for posting that. And thank you, everyone, for posting these questions. You're keeping me going while I'm waiting for um, Avi Loeb to come on. Here's another one here. Uh, Martin, what is your view on the lack of promise UAP report by our government? Lack of promise UAP. Uh, I don't know what's going on. I know that right around halloween time we were supposed to get another report i i have not really heard much of what is going on with that and information um i would like to know more about I, I know that they're they're supposed to report publicly so um i know i i do believe i there was something about they're thinking or they're trying to point the finger uh that these are drones uh, a lot of a lot of these things are drones, but I don't know how far they're going to be able to get with that with uh, all the other cases. And I think 2023 should be very promising as far as, um, you know, the uh, investigations that's going to go on because they're going to go all the way back to the 1940s, which is fascinating. There's so many as you know, anyone that follows this topic knows how much great information there was back in the 19. 19- you know, starting in the 1940s forward, you know, a lot of people will say, well, you know, these could be secret, you know, government programs and all that, but they kind of discount all the fact that these have been seen for, you know, decades and decades, uh, uh, doing all these unusual maneuvers that we can't explain. I, um, I did not hear of any increase in sightings, but our guest Avi Loeb has shown up. He's here. Avi, welcome.
2: Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure to join you.
0: Yes. uh, I'm so glad you, you showed up. I was getting a little bit nervous and kind of running out of things to talk about, but everyone was gracious enough to post some nice uh, questions up for me. So welcome. Welcome back. You're, you're an extremely busy guy and, uh, I I am always impressed with the, well, first of all, I'm always impressed that you answer my email right away. I mean, you must get a thousand emails a day or something like that.
2: Yeah, well, uh, today was particularly busy because I was going over the final draft of my new book that is supposed to come out in August uh, 2023, at the end of August, and it's called Interstellar, and uh, it should be interesting. Um, I, I just finished
0: going over it. Wow! So you, with everything you do, you find time to write a book as well. <laughs> well, uh, that's very important. It's sort of like a
2: diary summarizing my thoughts uh, about the past and the future, and uh, it's not so much about me as uh, as it is about uh, what I find most important these days. You know, and I reached a, a point in my life where I care less about my personal. Um, Faith and what happens to me and more about what will happen to humanity and what the future may hold and how can we uh, make the future better than the past and that's pretty much what my book is about
0: wow that's really great um, I'm going to put up right here just uh, I wanted to put up your your articles that you write because again here Thank you, you are writing all of these articles it's just amazing and i've skimmed through a couple of them and and um just i'm very very impressed because you look at these it's just almost like every day (laughs) right and the only reason today's
2: uh, article will be a little delayed i'll write it after we speak is because uh, i was engaged with the new book uh, interstellar that's the title and it's harper collins it's already on the website uh, today's news, I, I had um, already uh, two interviews in the morning about it, is the announcement of uh, uh, ignition at the nuclear ignition facility uh, using lasers to compress a pellet with uh, hydrogen uh, and they demonstrated fusion is possible in the lab and they created a small star, a tiny little star for a short period of time and that's uh, an accomplishment. And, It's sort of an imitation of what nature did for many, many uh, billions of years, which is stars. You know, at the center of a star, you get the nuclear fusion of the same uh, nature. And uh, the only difference is that a star like the sun is held by gravity. And so the nuclear fuel reaches very high temperatures, but doesn't explode, doesn't run away because gravity binds it. For that, you need a very massive object in our laboratories, gravity is completely irrelevant. And so we need some other way of confining the hot gas that is, you know, hundreds of millions of degrees uh, that is fusing. And the way they accomplish that is uh, with laser beams, uh, uh, basically generating X rays that compress a pellet and it reached uh, ignition. And uh, that was a major feat of engineering. I mean, it's not new physics, it's just imitating nature. Just the way that the Wright brothers uh, uh, were able to imitate birds. You know, we, humans saw birds for so many centuries and uh, mm-hmm. a hundred, uh, about a century ago in 1905, the Wright brothers
0: demonstrated that humans can do it as well. So what is this? What do you think this means? Where, where do you think this can go? I mean, there has been talk about this and cold fusion. That, is that a, that's a whole different Thing, isn't it? Yeah, no, this one is hot fusion. <laughs> yeah. Um, cold fusion was not
2: demonstrated to work. Um, mm. And uh, the original experiments uh, were um, repeated and did not produce um, uh, results similar to those claimed originally. So we don't know if uh, cold fusion is possible. But hot fusion has been uh, attempted for many decades. And the issue is really how to confine the hot gas at hundreds of millions of degrees. Uh, And the one approach that was very popular is using magnetic fields, very strong magnetic fields. And the biggest uh, demonstration of that is the ITER uh, experiment in Europe. But that's a a gigantic uh, facility, and we haven't reached the milestone of ignition there. Uh, The approach taken at Livermore uh, that was announced today uh, in terms of being successful was to use a lot of laser beams, very powerful laser beams, uh, that shine into a cavity inside of which there is a pellet. And the x-rays generated as they interact with the walls, all these laser beams, uh, they compress the pellet to very high temperatures and densities such that it ignites. And the challenge in that method, it's called inertial confinement. The challenge is to uh, get a uniform collapse contraction of this pellet. And it's very easy for it to collapse along one axis and then it just becomes a pancake and you don't get the high temperatures and densities. So they managed to accomplish that. That's a, a major achievement. and But it's not clear whether it will become practical for two reasons. One, um, you have to replenish the pellet. So it's a very sort of... Um, uh, it's sort of like an engine that operates on... Um, Uh, tiny explosions you can think of it as a a tiny nuclear explosion and uh, fusion explosion Uh, so then you need to replace the pellet every so often and uh, in order to gain enough energy that can power a city Uh, but then in addition you have to extract the energy from the system and the energy comes out in very energetic neutrons uh, and it's not obvious that the engineering of how to uh, extract their energy is is so simple. So I, I'm not uh, much more optimistic that nuclear fusion will become practical, and it will take decades. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just a major feat in terms of humans being able to imitate nature. That's, yeah. that's the significance of it.
0: Yeah, that is that is and it would be great, though, if um, I understand that there, there wouldn't be the hazardous waste like there is with nuclear power if they could figure this out, right?
2: Right, That's except it, it could happen on the walls, depending on how you absorb the neutrons. But um, indeed, the, the material, the fuel itself is not um, producing uh, radioactive uh, debris that could uh, cause problems. Um, mm-hmm. I should say that fission is known to work, uh, nuclear reactors work, and it could be uh, the, the best uh, source of clean energy in the future, irrespective of what happens with, with fusion, if we Uh, build the safe reactors, which is a a possible way uh, uh, for us to maintain, you know, uh, our long-term energy needs. Um, So, um, I wouldn't say that fusion is a must- uh, for our civilization to get its energy uh, in the long-term future, uh, we we uh, we could get the best source of clean energy out of nuclear reactors that based on fission, and uh, it's just a matter of engineering it uh, so that we prevent any catastrophes.
0: Right, right, and uh, yeah, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, I had uh, there's been hope for cold fusion. I know there's there's a uh, a private company in Washington state that thinks that they're going to be able to crack that problem. And I don't know. I mean, they are working on it and they are, they are well funded from what I understand. And that would be really something if, yeah, they could I mean, that out.
2: altogether, uh, any such a uh, uh, breakthrough would, would help perhaps to venture into space because as of now, all the spacecraft we launched were based on chemical propellants and right. Yeah. Um they produce much less energy uh, by a factor of almost a million uh per unit wow. mass of fuel so so um if we are able to manufacture relatively small um, uh either fusion or fission um, reactors that can be used as engines for spacecraft, that would be amazing uh but uh, wow. as of now um the limit of all, of, of on the terminal speed of all the spacecraft that they launched since uh, Sputnik until uh, New Horizons, all of them uh, reached tens of kilometers per second as the terminal speed, and that's the tyranny of the rocket equation. The problem is they carry their own fuel, and they mm. cannot, they cannot uh, reach speeds that exceed by more than one order of magnitude or so. The exhaust speed of the gases coming out of their exhaust because they have to carry the fuel so the rocket equation doesn't allow you to reach very high speeds just because of the exhaust speed of chemical propellants but with nuclear you can reach much higher exhaust speeds
0: now is there any further advance has there been any further advancement on the star shot that you were involved in right so that's a completely different
2: approach where you say uh instead of carrying the fuel the uh, the the spacecraft is being pushed by some external force. And in this case, it's light, a beam of light. And mm-hmm. the idea is to have a lightweight uh, sail, just like the sail of a boat, which is uh, being pushed by reflecting light. Um, and we were thinking about a very powerful laser shining at the uh, sail, the size of a person that weighs roughly a gram, very thin, um, and then pushes it over a few minutes to a fifth of the speed of light, and then you can attach uh, electronics to that sail. That's the Starshot um, concept, and uh, we're working on various um, components of this. And we don't, we still don't see a showstopper, but it's very challenging. So uh, building uh, the lasers and also making the sail—you know—that it's all possible with existing understanding of how. Uh, these things can be made, but
0: uh, we are not there yet. We are we are working on it. Now, was there there was a Russian gentleman involved in that? Is he is he still involved in that? <laughs> well, he is
2: is uh, not a is uh, not Russian citizen uh, anymore. Uh, he I see. Is, um Yeah, he um, yeah he is he's, he's an entrepreneur from uh, Silicon Valley and a physicist. Uh, his name is Yuri Milner, and uh, yeah, he he still funds uh, this as well as other initiatives uh, such as searching for um, um, radio signals or other kinds of signals from extraterrestrial civilizations. That that's called the Breakthrough uh, Listen. And the other the other initiative is Breakthrough Starshot.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Now uh, we're going to talk in a minute about. I would like to talk about this possible or this excursion. Um, or whatever you would like to call it, uh, right off of the coast of Papua New Guinea. But, um, but before that, I, I guess I'd like to ask you, um, you have gotten so much publicity out of, you know, talking about Oumuamua and and all that over the last few years since you were on this show. And has the feedback still been positive? I know there was a lot of people actually helping fund the Galileo Project. How is all that going? Well, my book came out uh, less than two years ago, and uh, I had
2: about 2,000 interviews and appearances and yeah. all, all uh, media outlets, and the book was translated to 25 languages. It became a bestseller. Wow. Just to give you uh, – it, it became bestseller in many countries, but just to give you an, an impression, I was uh, in two public forums uh, last month, and one of them uh, – an Iranian-born entrepreneur came to me and said, can I have a selfie with you? And I said, of course. And then the following morning, uh, she saw me and, and said, that, did you know that you have hundreds of women scientists in Iran that are following your work? And I said, I, I never knew about it because she posted it in Instagram and she got immediately messages about it. Huh. So it looks like all over the world. I mean, that what that shows is that uh, this subject of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence unifies um, everyone irrespective of national borders. I was born in Israel. These are women from Iran. Uh, There is nothing. uh, I mean, it brings people together. And uh, I think the more we uh, research the subject, the more we would find there is some low hanging fruit uh, because this path that we are taking was not taken. Uh, The reason Uh, it's very different from the search for intelligence in the past, is that we were looking for radio signals or or laser signals. And this is just like uh, waiting for a phone call at home. Um, For that, you need whoever calls you to be active at the time that you are waiting. Uh, But uh, there is a completely different approach, which is to just Check your mailbox if there are any packages that accumulated over time. The sender may be dead by now, but the packages keep accumulating in your mailbox um, over the years. And uh, that we have never done. Only over the past decade, we had the instruments that allow us to detect objects from outside the solar system. And we found four of them, uh, two of which are meteors uh, that we will talk about in a minute that uh, I discovered with my student, Amir Siraj that came from outside the solar system. They were roughly half a meter in size. And the third was Oumuamua, that my book is dedicated to. And all three, uh, from 2014 to 2017, all three were uh, outliers. They didn't resemble the familiar rocks, uh, space rocks that we've seen before from the solar system. Uh, The meteors, because of their material strength, they were the toughest that were... Were ever ever spotted among all meteors uh, uh, out of 270 that the U.S. government uh, detected, uh, and and Oumuamua was unusual because of its shape. It it was most likely pancake-like, and then it was pushed away from the sun by, without showing any cometary evaporation, no rocket effect, and so it it was anomalous and. Uh, what I'm saying is, if the first three objects are unusual, then we are missing something about what comes from outside the solar system. The fourth, the fourth one was um, just like a comet. It's it's called Borisov after the um, astronomer amateur astronomer who discovered it. So um, altogether, this is a new frontier, and we haven't tried checking our mailbox. And the fact that we found these unusual packages tells us. Maybe there is something out there that we haven't figured out. And um, so we are planning an expedition to scoop the ocean floor where the first meteor uh, exploded and it disintegrated in the lower atmosphere of the earth. And it was tougher than iron. So we want to find out whether it was natural in origin or maybe a spacecraft, maybe artificial. And we're planning an expedition. I was funded at uh one and a half million dollars for that. Um, and we will do it before summer 2023, within six months. Uh, and um, you know, you asked me about funding. Basically, my book uh, brought a lot of interesting people to my, the porch of my home during the pandemic. They just yeah. showed up. A, a lot of uh, w- very wealthy individuals that gave me a few million dollars that allowed me to establish the Galileo project. That we have a hundred people involved, and we are starting to get data uh, from instruments that we put together scientifically. And um, in the coming months, we'll um, analyze this data. We'll build copies of the first system that seems to work. We're basically taking a video of the sky in the infrared, optical, Mm -hmm. radio, and audio. And uh, that was never done before uh, with a suite of instruments that we have full control over, that we fully understand.
0: And will, will the information, is that going to be publicly available?
2: Yeah. So there will be an early uh, period where we will uh, make sure that the data is not contaminated with some uh, malfunction of instruments or uh, things we don't fully understand. And then, of course, we will uh, release it, make it open, uh, and also report about it in scientific papers that will be submitted to
0: peer-reviewed journals. That's great. That's great. Now, so on this excursion, how do you propose that you're going to is it through instruments that you're going to be able to detect the fragments if that's what they are on the ocean floor? How do you, how do you plan to do that?
2: Yeah, we're starting to build the machinery. It will have a sled with magnets on it so that if there is any magnetic, I mean, ferromagnetic material like iron or Uh, other metals that are attracted to to the magnets, we will uh, uh, separate it from the muck that is on the ocean floor, the ooze. Um, Mm. And uh, um, in addition, if it's not magnetic, uh, the the fragments from the meteor, we actually wrote a scientific paper just a week ago uh, where we calculated the distribution of fragment sizes that we expect, if it's made of iron or if it's made of uh, steel, for example, if it's artificial in origin. And um, we should be able to find the pieces, uh, most of them of order a millimeter or less, but uh, some of them could be, especially if it's very tough material, like steel, some of them could be centimeters in size. And uh, I already promised uh, Paula Antonelli, the curator of the Museum of Modern Art in New York City, that if we find any gadget, I'll bring it uh, for display. Uh, Because for us, it would represent modernity, even though the senders might think of it as ancient history. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about
0: anywhere.
1: This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these
2: cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright and start getting lucky.
1: That's ChumbaCasino.com.
0: No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hmm. Boy, wouldn't that be something everyone would want to come see that. That's for sure. Well, uh, let's
2: uh, hope we find something. It's it's a very challenging mission. The the ocean floor is a, a mile deep, and we plan to oh. spend a couple of weeks there. Uh, but the Galileo project as a whole, I mean, this is just one branch of it uh, looking yeah. for Uh, fragments of interstellar meteors the second is looking at unidentified aerial phenomena that the government reported about and we are planning to get the data and then the third one would be to come close or rendezvous or if you want date the next uh, omuamua the next object that looks unusual and doesn't collide with the earth like meteors doesn't come close but we might uh, meet it along its path and take a high resolution image of it and For that uh, we are designing the mission the space mission that would be needed that's a very expensive uh, mission it would cost about a billion dollars uh and to find candidates that we want to date we have a dating app which is the vera rubin observatory in chile that will start operations in about a year and will provide us with candidates and we will choose i mean most of the time we will swipe to the left because it's a very expensive date.
0: It sure sounds like it. Wow! Um, so before we got going here, someone um, was asking—they're involved in like this uh, star star watch. I'm, I'm sorry, meteor. The meteor watch tonight, and they wanted to know um, if scientists are paying attention or um, astronomers are paying attention to where Amuamua is now. Can you calculate? how far away this thing is, roughly? All right. So the problem
2: is that uh, by now it's uh, 10 million times uh, fainter than it was close to Earth. So it, it's impossible to detect it with existing telescopes. Um, and moreover, the trajectory was not known to a high enough precision for us to chase it or to even look for it at this time. If you wanted to send a spacecraft that will try to find it, it would have to be equipped with a huge telescope just to first spot where it is because we don't know the trajectory well enough to figure out where it is right now. So uh, it's completely impractical. But instead of, you know, it's just like going on a date and liking a person, but then not having the the phone number of that person, so you can't really (laughs) get in touch. But what the approach, the healthy approach, my advice is if you have such an experience, you better date more people with the hope that one of them will resemble that uh, very fortunate date you had. And so that's what we are planning to do. Look for more objects like it. Yeah. But what you were able to calculate a speed at one time, weren't you? Oh, of course. No. When it came close to Earth, we know uh, the speed and the direction it was moving. And not only that, we could tell that uh, it's accelerating in a way that is not uh, fully consistent with the sun's gravity. So... There was a force acting on it pushing it away from the sun and uh, it was not clear what this force is because uh, there was no rocket effect from cometary evaporation and um, so uh, i suggested it's the reflection of sunlight just like the sol- the solar sails that we were talking about before with the laser yeah. except here it's the sunlight uh and then um, um, actually three years later In September 2020, there was another object that was discovered, uh, which exhibited the same uh, qualities as Oumuamua. It didn't have a cometary tail, and it was pushed by reflecting sunlight. But uh, a few weeks after it was discovered, it was given the name 2020SO. uh, But it was discovered by the same telescope in Hawaii, uh, Pansars.
0: Hmm. And
2: the astronomers uh, realized, oh, it's actually based... If you just extrapolate the trajectory back in time it came from earth uh in 1966 it's a rocket booster uh that was uh, called lunar surveyor that uh, was sent by nasa and um and later on they verified that indeed it's made of uh, stainless steel uh so obviously no cometary tail uh and moreover the the walls were thin enough for it to be to be pushed by reflecting sunlight so Uh, Here is an example for an artificial object that is pushed by sunlight, uh, not on purpose. It was not designed to be a sail, but it was thin enough. It had a large enough area for its mass. And um, so we know that it's artificial because we produced it. The question is, who produced
0: uh, Oumuamua? Right. But we uh, we have space junk all over the place, don't we? Oh, yeah. Uh, Closer to Earth, of course.
2: Uh, uh, So what happens every now and then is that one of these objects, uh, you know, as a result of friction with the upper atmosphere falls in and burns up. And Mm. that we also see. And so there is a lot of junk. uh, But this one, the the rocket booster was launched well beyond the atmosphere of Earth. And at first it was not recognized as such. Uh, as our own creation. But um, it just demonstrates that being pushed by sunlight uh, occurs also for our own uh, products, you know. And um, therefore, you know, it could be that Oumuamua was not a light sail, just like 2020 SO was not a light sail. And uh, maybe Oumuamua is just a surface layer of something else or who knows what its purpose was.
0: Yes, and we talked about when you were on the show before. We talked about this that it was a artist. The artist's conception of the piece was like a cigar-shaped rock, but that's not not what was really. No. It was not thought. Well, uh, yeah, because uh, when um, astronomers analyze
2: the data, and by the way, this is all uh, scientific data with uh, very high precision. So when uh, they try to model the shape of it, uh, the the best. Uh, fit was obtained at the 90% confidence uh, to that of a pancake, a flat object and not a cigar shape. Now, even a flat object, if you imagine a piece of paper, when projected on the sky, you know, it may look like a cigar because you see it sideways. Right. And that's yeah. uh, the reason, uh, I mean, that, that initially people argued is a cigar because uh, projected on the sky, it may look like that.
0: Right. Here's a question going back to the 2014 uh, meteor off of uh, Papua New Guinea. So Bobby wanted to know how was the hardness of the media d- determined? Okay. That's an excellent question.
2: Uh, so what happened is I was uh, invited for an interview on a different uh, meteor um, and uh, I wanted to learn a little more about meteors. So I went online and Uh, I I realized there is a catalog of meteors that the US government compiled as they are monitoring the atmosphere for ballistic missiles, you know, the, for national Mm. security purposes. And, uh, and then I found this catalog. So I asked my student to check uh, whether the fastest moving meteors could have originated from outside the solar system. If they move fast enough, they're not bound uh, to to the sun's gravity. And, Uh, We found that the fastest one is actually a head-on collision with the Earth. So it was fast relative to the Earth just by chance because it was moving opposite to the Earth's direction. But the second fastest is the one from January 8, 2014. And that came from the side and it was actually moving really fast relative to the sun. And um, it was detected by government sensors when it exploded about 19 kilometers above the ocean Surface And so we uh, wrote a paper about it saying this is actually the first interstellar object ever discovered because it dates back to 2014, almost four years before Oumuamua was discovered. But the paper was rejected uh, by the reviewers because they argued, we don't believe the US government, we don't have the uncertainties, and perhaps they're large. And, of course, the U.S. government didn't disclose the uncertainties in the measurement because they don't want adversaries to be aware of the quality of the data. Mm. And uh, But they need to know if a ballistic missile will hit Boston or Washington. You know, they need to know that. Uh, so I was pretty confident. But then it took me three years to reach um, out to people uh, beyond the national security fence. And eventually... Uh, there was a letter written by the U.S. Space Command uh, under the Department of Defense to NASA uh, in which it was confirmed that the 99.999% confidence that indeed this uh, meteor came from outside the solar system, that the uncertainties were really small. Uh, And um, uh, at that point, our paper, I mean, we resubmitted it and it was accepted for publication in the Astrophysical Journal. And then we looked back at the catalog. We found another meteor, uh, roughly a meter in size. This one um, not far from Portugal. Um, And uh, we plan to go on an expedition to find this one next, after the first one. Uh, Both of them are the toughest in the catalog. Uh, And how do we know that? Okay, so here I get to the answer. We know that because the government also released the, the light curve of the explosion, the amount of light that generated and the the flares. And from the location in the atmosphere where the explosion took place, uh, we could tell the stress that the air exerted on these objects. So as they move through the air, there is a certain, um, what is called ram pressure, a certain stress that the material um, feels. Um, And they survived all the way down to the lower atmosphere of the earth at very high speed. And that means, I mean, since the atmosphere is very dense down uh, Mm -hmm. in it, uh, we could calculate what is the necessary material strength to withstand that kind of a stress or pressure that the air exerts. And uh, we found that it's larger than the material strength of iron. Okay. And, uh, These objects were tougher than all 270 other space rocks in the same catalog of of the government. They are the toughest ever. Uh, And um, the chance of drawing them out of the uh, distribution of material strength for for solar system rocks is less than one in 10,000. So that means that if they originate from a natural origin, uh, their parent system has to be different than the solar system. And, you know, it could be that, for example, an exploding star uh, ejects bullets or small rocks that are uh, very tough. It's possible. We don't know. So the point is, whatever we find down at the bottom of the ocean uh, would teach us something important, because apparently these objects are tougher than solar system rocks. And um, let's see what we find. It's possible also that there were... Are made of artificial alloys that uh,
0: nature doesn't put together, and that that would be even more exciting if we find it. But um, someone had a question here, David Jones. He said, "What if it's made of a non-magnetic material? Right. Like if that's, it's artificial?" Yeah, it could that's an excellent. Be.
2: Um, that's an excellent question, and so we have a plan B in case it's not attracted to the magnet. All the fragments that we are looking for and, um, in that case, we have um, a, a mesh net behind it that we will um, collect uh, fragments with if um, they're big enough. So uh, we will filter out the abundant uh, muck that is on the ocean floor and uh, just collect anything bigger than a certain size with a mesh net. So that that's uh, our plan to use
0: um, in addition to the magnets. I see. And... Are we talking like a major square mile section that you're going to be searching? I mean, how do you know uh, where to search?
2: Well, we know the coordinates of where uh, the meteor exploded. uh, And then we calculate. So given a fragment size distribution, the small fragments, uh, they have a large surface area for their mass. And so they suffer a lot of friction with the air. And they basically rain down straight from the explosion location point. Okay, so they rain down as hot rain because the amount of energy released was a few percent of the Hiroshima atomic bomb. Okay, so um, what you end up is melting any solid material, irrespective of the composition, and you end up with droplets. Uh, so that's like very hot rain coming down. And if you had an umbrella, it wouldn't protect you because it's hot. Uh, and then uh, as it rains on the ocean, steam comes up uh, and then it, th- these fragments settle down. So the small fragments would appear just down from the explosion point, And then the bigger fragments continue along the path of the meteor because they have less friction with the air. And then the biggest chunks, of course, follow the path of the original path of the meteor. And um so we plan to basically find this strip along which the fragments are distributed with small fragments first and then larger fragments along the path. And um, and we have the localization to within, uh, right now, 10 kilometers. So it, it's a relatively big area that, you know, several miles that we will have to... A survey and it's just like mowing the lawn uh, we will go back and forth and mm-hmm. we don't need to go deep um, there is not much activity on the ocean floor so we should see what we find it's, it's an adventure and definitely
0: worth uh, doing and we're fully funded for it that's wonderful about how far off of the earth's surface were was this particular explosion oh you mean from um, a land yeah, from, no,
2: how far up in the air? Say. Oh, yeah, uh, it was uh, 18.7 kilometers up above the ocean surface, yes. I
0: see, um, wow.
2: So, um, it's relatively low, given that, um, you know, the, this is uh, in the lower atmosphere of the Earth, where the density is on, is, is not very far from what we find uh, at sea level, you know, it's just a few times lower. So, um If it were made of stone, for example, it would have exploded much higher up because it was moving at 45 kilometers per second, a very high speed. The escape speed from the Earth is 11 kilometers per second. That's what you need. Um, uh, Any rocket that you launch beyond the gravitational pull of Earth, that's Mm -hmm. the kind of speed it needs
0: to reach, at least 11 kilometers per second. Right. 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 This is an interesting question someone put up there. What is your opinion of the work of John Mack of Harvard? And I guess I want to ask you, has there been any parallels as far as what you have been doing to what John Mack did? I I don't know if you've looked into that at all.
2: Well, no, there is no overlap because he was interested in people. And uh, humans are not scientific instruments for physicists. I'm a physicist. I'm an astrophysicist. Uh, you can't write a scientific paper in physics saying, This person told me that. Okay, you cannot do that. There is yeah. no, and there is a good reason for this tradition because people very often have hallucinations. I mean, they are sincere, they tell you that they uh, felt or, or had some uh, experiences. They are sincere about it, I have no doubt, but humans can easily be fooled and we know that uh, when people take um, recreational drugs or people have an accident they have all kinds of impressions that have nothing to do with the reality that surrounds them and therefore we don't use people as detectors okay now uh we can use it as intriguing evidence that is worth putting instruments but in science, in, in physics you need to rely on data collected by instruments because it's repeatable you can mm-hmm. repeat the experiment. And instruments do not have personalities. You know, They just do, they measure whatever they measure. And um, we fully understand how they get the data that, that we collect. And so not only that you have to use instruments, you have to understand to calibrate the instruments. And for example, when we see fuzzy images from the cockpits of fighter jets, that's not a scientific experiment because we don't know what the camera was doing when this or or the cockpit was doing when we, we these photos were taken so what so science is based on using instruments separate from people that provide quantitative results and are fully understood fully calibrated and controlled in a way that one understands because otherwise you can't really digest the information that you get
0: all right well um i another another the question I have about this is um, have you been uh, treated any different since you started looking into this by Harvard? Oh, uh, no. Harvard Um, Harvard was fully supportive. I mean, there was an initial phase where
2: I was asked uh, whether um, um, what I do is related to astronomy. And I said, of course, because in astronomy we use telescopes and look at the sky and analyze the data and, That's what the Galileo project is doing. And that was a question asked when uh, I started to get funding uh, for the Galileo project and the funding is being channeled through Harvard. So it was just an administrative uh, question, but otherwise, uh, no, uh, what I should say is, um, you know, this is a subject that um, my hope is to bring to the mainstream because we are following the scientific method and collecting data the way scientists do in any other respect, just, like in the search for dark matter, we don't know what most of the matter in the universe is. And people have searched and, and studied various possibilities. And I, I would argue that the, the fact that we exist, that we sent probes to interstellar space, and the fact that we know that a substantial fraction of all the sun-like stars have planets like the Earth implies that it's quite possible and even likely that... The, That someone like us predated us and and sent probes that by now would have reached us. And we know that most stars formed billions of years before the sun. So there was plenty of time, even for chemical rockets, to make the trip from the edge of the galaxy to the solar system. So, Now, another thing I wanted to mention is uh, I already said that the the paper about the interstellar meteor was first um, rejected because the argument was we don't believe the U.S. government. It was not because we don't believe Avi Loeb. I mean, it was the U.S. government that was put in question. And uh, so um, and now, you know, when we submitted another paper on the same subject after the letter came from uh, the Department of Defense, which came to my defense, uh, which by the way is interesting in itself because uh, it's a very conservative organization, the government, right? And the fact that the government comes to the defense of science, uh, you know, at the frontier uh, is interesting because uh, at the same time, there is a lot of pushback from what you might call blue sky academia, and which is supposed to be more open-minded than government. And, you know, the fact that oh. I get the uh, uh, support from the government uh, for this study was uh, remarkable in my, uh, I mean, this is not the first time it happened. It happened before when the U.S. government was looking uh, for uh, a set of uh, satellites to monitor nuclear explosions by the Russians. It was the late uh, 1960s above the atmosphere. So they were looking for gamma-ray flashes, and then they saw, uh, it's called the Vila satellite system, and they saw uh, flashes of gamma-rays coming And I'm sure that on the first few instances, they thought, well, it's every day or every few days. What are the Russians doing? And there must have been a lot of troubled people in Washington, D.C., worrying about it. But then uh, it was realized that it may come from uh, far away. And so the data was brought to the attention of uh, scientists, astronomers in Los Alamos, who then... uh, published it in 1972 as a Gamma-ray Burst. And they said, we don't know what the source is. And it took um, until 1997 for astronomers to figure out that these flashes of gamma rays originate from the edge of the universe when a, the core of a star collapses to a black hole and you end up producing jets, very, very energetic uh, jets. And if the, the jet is pointed at us, we see it as a gamma ray flash. And so it's basically Mm -hmm. the signal of the formation of a black hole from the collapse of the core of a massive star. And that was figured out only in 1997. Uh, And it shows you that the data from the government helps uh, progress in science in, in both instances. But what I wanted to say is when we reported the second interstellar meteor, and that happened just a couple of months ago, that paper, also on an interstellar meteor, was accepted for publication within weeks. So, so wow. uh, I can see a shift uh, for the better. I, uh, I, we,
0: didn't, we didn't have as much yeah. friction. That's right. I, I've, I've seen that too. Here's an interesting question, and I hope you may understand it better than I do. Could uh, you please explain nanotechnological and synthetic biology-based multiplexed and scalable chipset nanoprobe and bioprobe technology? Do you understand any of that? (laughs) Uh,
2: Yeah, well, there was a paper that uh, was just uh, published um, in Astrobiology. That's a journal, uh, George Church, a colleague of mine from Harvard Medical School published it. It was inspired by the Starshot concept that I mentioned before, where the plan is to send a a tiny nanoprobe to the nearest star system. And so what the church was advocating is um, perhaps um, sending out DNA and sort of seeding the Milky Way galaxy with things that we want to plant on other planets far away. That's a long-term project, you know, sending it beyond the solar system elsewhere. There are people that would argue, yeah, we shouldn't be so proud of our Seeds so that you know to plant them elsewhere, maybe you know, mm-hmm. maybe there is a better thing to do rather than contaminate the universe. But uh, on the other hand, it's a natural tendency if humanity wants to make uh, copies of things that it finds uh, attractive or worthwhile, then it's good to send these copies elsewhere so that they will not disappear from a single point catastrophe. If something bad happens on Earth, you know. We don't want um, all forms of life as we know it to disappear. So one way to preserve them is to send them to space and with the hope that it's just like dandelion seeds with the hope that one of them will give uh, birth to another form of life somewhere else.
0: That whole thing about seeds is fascinating how we have some that are you know, I mean, preserved, we have all these seeds preserved. But anyway, I can't believe how quickly this hour went. I know you have a commitment. So I really do appreciate uh, your time a lot. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me. It was a real pleasure. And stay tuned for what we find. We
2: should see That's right.
0: I'll be glad to report back in, in more than half a year from now. Yes, I would love to find that out. Thank you very much. And nice talking to you again. Bye bye. Bye now. All right, everyone, we'll be back next week. And I don't have a guest to announce yet. Uh, there was a change, so I will let you know. If you sign up at the uh, website, podcastufo.com, the newsletter there, will uh, the weekly newsletter, just sign up for an email blast for that. Thanks so much, and remember to keep your eyes to the sky.